This is a Federal News Network podcast. Big changes are underway in the Navy Reserve. Officials are taking a top-to-bottom look at every single one of the Reserve's units to decide which missions and which jobs make the most sense for the force's future. So far, the exam has led to the elimination of hundreds of positions, but the addition of hundreds more. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, the thrust of the effort is to get the Navy's reserve component ready for great power competition. Navy reserve leaders are about 80 percent finished with a process that's examining 6,000 separate military billets, asking whether those positions are the best use of the reserve component's budget and manpower. In a lot of cases, the answer has turned out to be no. The review, which is looking at nearly 1,500 separate Navy reserve units across the country, has already identified 850 positions to eliminate and 780 to add. Rear Admiral Sean Duane is the reserve's top official for operations, plans, and strategy. Every reservist out there, everybody in the uniform is doing phenomenal, important work. What we also found is some of that work could be more relevant to the fight and the strategic environment we find itself in now, today. We're in a great power competition, and we, there's certain things that are great to do because we're good at it. There's other billets and other jobs and units that we need for the phase two fight we're going to find ourselves in in the near future. So we have to be ready. That being said, there were some divestments we discovered. There's some units that were just basically uh, not warfighting centric and not key to the strategy where we're moving. That enabled some other investments. To date, we've made a lot of uh, progress on investing those key capabilities that actually add tremendous value strategic uh, readiness. Some of the new high-value focus areas include billets in the Navy's Maritime Operations Centers. 478 billets will be added in that area alone, along with nearly $70 million in new funding. Other additions include positions in the Navy's P-8 Patrol Aircraft Squadrons, Destroyer Squadron Maintenance, Rescue Swimmers, and Jobs with Space Specialties. Vice Admiral John Muston, the Chief of the Navy Reserve, says the reallocations are focused on putting reserve manpower in the areas where it makes the most sense. If anybody thinks that the Navy Reserve is a small U.S. Navy, uh, you don't understand our force design. Because what you've heard from Admiral Duane, when we talk about our Design the Force initiatives, we're trying to determine where we can be the most consequential contributors to the Navy. In some cases, there are things that we and only we as reservists do. So let's talk about VR squadrons. You know, we talk about intra-theater lift in our 12 um, squadrons that fly C-130 Hercules and C-40s. You know, there is no active duty counterpart to that. So someone who is coming off of active duty will never be qualified to fly C-130s for us. And yet we train them to do that. There are some things that are active only that we say as reservists, it doesn't make sense for us to invest in the training that would allow us to step in seamlessly and perform a billing. To maintain currency in the types of systems that we have today is very expensive and takes a lot of time. I can't take someone a weekend, a month, and two weeks a year and make them into a tactical action officer on an Arleigh Burke destroyer. Okay, so, so we have looked very hard to determine where is it that we can do the best work at a resource-informed rate, meaning the most efficient investment that the Navy can make. And if the Navy is refocusing its reserve unit's manpower in areas that make the most sense for the reserve, it's more important for the reserve to keep those units more or less intact and maintain their readiness. One part of that effort is to reduce the number of occasions when individual sailors are temporarily separated from their units to serve as individual augmentees in other parts of the Navy or in other services. That ongoing initiative is called IA to Zero. 
Mustin says the reserve is still a long way from zero, but those individual mobilizations are expected to drop to about 1,200 this year. That's less than half of what the reserve has seen in recent years, and none of those IA orders will be involuntary. That doesn't mean our sailors aren't mobilizing, however. It doesn't mean that they're not serving. What I've offered now to our combatant commanders and to our OPNAV three-star deputy CNOs and uh, our numbered fleets and our four-star fleets is there isn't a binary choice, choice with cell res sailors. They're not either cell res or mobilized. We have many other tools in our toolkit to get sailors where they need to be to perform important missions. ADT is a great example. We've got opportunities to do additional days of support absent entitlement or mobilization. What if we need folks for 30 days? What if we need them for 60 days, 90 days, 120, 180 days? Avoid the temptation to say, I'm either a cell res doing 38 days or I'm mobilized. We've got every day between there nailed in the continuum with lots of other funding sources and lots of other entitlement and authorities that allow us to get you where you need to be. Mustin says the reserve is exploring several other changes as it pivots to an emphasis on delivering forces that provide the best value to the fleet. For example, in some cases, sailors could be assigned to the same billet for as long as five years rather than the typical two or three years. And the reserve's best performers are going to be more likely to be promoted ahead of their peers. As to those extended tour lengths, Mustin says the new emphasis on reservist contributions to maritime operations centers, for example, demand more training. So it makes more sense to leave sailors assigned to those positions for longer periods. We're training you to do a job, one that we're going to need you to do in competition and conflict. We are wringing every iota of efficiency out of every minute and every training dollar that you receive. How are we giving you more lethality and giving the fleet more of what they need? Let's talk about tour lengths. Some of our operational forces and our maritime ops centers require significant training and demand longer tours to realize a meaningful return on that investment. I'm going to start detailing, not just slating. We can't afford to leave critical billets vacant, and I'm going to start offering up orders that you didn't ask for. We've already implemented this year below zone promotions. Superior performance is going to be recognized and rewarded. I don't believe that people have to steep or put additional time in. I want the best actor on stage. If you're a superstar, regardless of if you're junior, we're going to select you. Meanwhile, the Navy Reserve expects to lose a not insignificant part of its force in the coming months because of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Mustin says the Reserve is now about 95% vaccinated, but there are still a lot of steadfast vaccine refusers. The Navy projects about 2,000 reservists will be retired or involuntarily separated for that reason. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. 
Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why i think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion some of that probably comes from the fact that i've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.